Gracious God, I pray now that you would help us to be attentive to your word and to your spirit. God, I pray that as my words line up with your words, that they would fall on ears and hearts ready to receive them and respond. God, if I say anything that's not from you, I pray that those words would quickly be forgotten. And I pray all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Mike, and I'm one of the priests here at Truro. And this morning, we're going to pick up where Bishop John left off last week in John chapter 6. So I'd like to invite you to open a Bible. If you brought one, or if it's on your smartphone, or in the Pew Bibles, you can find it on page 892. So go ahead and flip there as we dive in together. But before we dive in, let's go ahead and name the elephant in the room. In the last 20 months, we here at Truro have lost two senior leaders amidst allegations of misconduct, sandwiched on either side of a global pandemic. There's a parish meeting this afternoon at 5 p.m. to discuss Pastor Tim's situation, and here we are, in the meantime, gathered to worship. It's hard. Last week, I had lunch with one of our community group leaders, and he acknowledged that this is undoubtedly a difficult season with serious allegations, but he said something like this to me. He said, Mike, how much worse would it be if I went to church on Sunday morning and left without hearing the gospel? Later in John chapter 6, a section we'll get to in a few Sundays Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so that's where we're going this morning. To the one who has the words of eternal life. First, the context. Last week, we started in John chapter 6. Bishop John reminded us that Jesus had just fed 5,000 and that the crowd is looking for more from Jesus. They want him to do the miraculous for them again. They want the miracle when they ought to want Jesus. They ask Jesus what they must do. And the answer isn't to do anything. Bishop John reminded us that we cannot achieve salvation, but that we receive it as a gift, open-handed. We come to God who gives us himself, and in doing so, gives us everything that we need and more. We don't do something, but we trust someone. And that someone, it's Jesus, who tells the crowd that he is the bread of life. And that's where we pick the story up today, as Jesus continues what is known as the bread of life discourse. I think the most straightforward way to break down this passage is to break it into three sections. If you've got a Bible, this will be pretty clear to you. First, we've got Jesus' self-revelation, which tells us a whole lot about Jesus. Second, we've got the Jews grumbling. That's in the middle, which, if we look closely, tells us a whole lot about ourselves. And third, we have Jesus' response, which does itself invite a response. So let's take a look. John writes in verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
This is the first of seven of what theologians call the I am statements in John's gospel, statements loaded with Jesus's self-revelation. I am the bread of life. It's a clear claim to divinity, these I am statements, harking back to when Jesus, when God revealed his identity and his name to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3, 14. Jesus' audience and John's audience wouldn't have missed it. Jesus saying, I am, is about as bold a claim as one could make. He's not just identifying with God, but he's claiming to be one with God. It would have been shocking, the audacity of it. Jesus is saying, I am. And in doing so, he's saying, I'm not just any old prophet or teacher or even the Messiah as you expect him. I am God incarnate in the flesh. It's a, chain, a claim that changes everything. You can put off a teacher. You can question a prophet. But God? Either it's true and you're with him or you're not. Jesus doesn't leave any room for in-between, no room for rabbi or prophet. As C.S. Lewis famously said, you must make your choice. Either this man, Jesus, was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall down at his feet and call him Lord and God. But Lewis continues, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. I am. It's a clear claim to divinity. And it's one that requires a response. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. This too is a clear reference to the Old Testament, specifically to an Old Testament miracle. Maybe you've heard the story. Back in Exodus, God's people have been enslaved by Egypt. And following a series of miraculous interventions, Pharaoh lets God's people go. And Moses, the one that God uses to lead his people out of slavery, Moses leads his pe God's people into the desert. Now, they realize pretty quickly that the desert is just as dangerous as Egypt and that they're liable to starve. But God provides for them in the desert with a, a kind of bread called manna, which he sends to them every day so that they would not starve to death. And so when Jesus says that he is the bread of life, his audience would have heard right away and associated him with manna that God provided in the desert. Manna, God's provision that his people would not die, but would instead trust him and enter into all the promises that he had for them. Have you ever felt spiritually dry or alone or lost or uncertain of your future? in a desert. That's how God's people felt in the wilderness. 
and manna was God's answer. And so the bread of life, Jesus is claiming to be God's answer for those feeling spiritually dry or alone or lost or uncertain of the future. Jesus is claiming to be God's provision for you and for me when we feel lost in the deserts of life. Which brings us to the third self-revelation of Jesus in this section. You can't earn it. You can't earn a relationship with him. You can see it right here in verse 37. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. You won't come into a relationship with God because of how awesome you are. I mean, you're great, but you're not that great. Or because you have it all together. If you're anything like me, you don't. You're just making it up as best you can as you go. You won't come at all to Jesus because of you. You'll come because, as Jesus says right here, God has called you. And you know what? This takes the pressure off. You come to Jesus not because you've got your life together, but because the Father calls you. Not because you've done something right or haven't done something wrong, but because the Father says so. You feel like you're not good enough for God? You're not. But the good news is, is that it's not up to you. You can't earn it. Not only that, but you can't lose it. You can't lose it. Jesus says this over and over again in this section. Verse 37, whoever comes to me will never be cast out. And again in verse 39, Jesus says he will lose nothing the Father has given him. So not only does Jesus say you can't earn it, he also says you can't lose it. Once you belong to him, that's it. You're in. Not because of you, but because of him. And he won't let you go. It's the sort of reality that changes everything. Jesus, the I am, the bread of life who calls us to him, not because of how awesome we are, but because the Father has said so, and then doesn't let us go. No matter what happens, or doesn't happen, no matter the storms or the twists or the turns of life, he won't let you go. It's the sort of truth that changes the trajectory of everything about a life that inspires trust. But man, oh man, can it be hard for us to believe this sometimes, even if we know the result. I mean, we might believe it in our heads, but actually letting it sink in and changing our lives accordingly, believing it in such a way that tra the trajectory of our life is totally altered? I, I don't know about that. It sounds like a good idea, but I'd rather live life on my terms. That's how much of Jesus' audience felt. We meet them in verse 41, the grumblers. And the grumblers tell us a whole lot about ourselves. Look here, verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of God? 
whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Isn't this Jesus? The son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, Jesus doesn't fit their categories any longer, their expectations, what they think they know and understand about him, about how the world is supposed to work, about their place in it and his place in it. The carpenter's son? I mean, maybe we could see him as a miracle worker, but the I am, that is a step too far for these men and women. But Jesus always invites us a step further up and a step further in than we're comfortable with. Look back at verse 40. John writes this, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What we've got right here in this text is a real-life example of what it looks like to see and not believe. Jesus says right here, you have to see and believe. Friends, proximity to Jesus does not necessarily equal belief. Seeing doesn't necessarily equal belief. Even talking with Jesus, being among the right people, doesn't necessarily equal belief. We see it right here in the text. As one New Testament scholar puts it, we can blow it all if we treat Jesus as indeed quite a remarkable person, but make no act of trust in him or commitment to him. Jesus gives us his person. He wants our person. The gospel is person to person, not an information exchange. And that's the key. See and believe. There's an act of trust required. The Greek word here is pistis. It's often translated faith, but it can also be described as trust or confidence in. The best way I've ever heard it described is like this. Maybe you've heard this illustration before. This is the best way I've ever heard pistis described. I can see this stool. I can look at it closely and acknowledge that it does, in fact, look quite nice. It's got clean lines, looks to be sturdy in workmanship, relatively comfortable. Maybe I even saw earlier that Liz sat on that stool that was kind of like it, and it held her up. But seeing and even affirming on an intellectual level in my head is not quite the same as trusting as putting confidence in, actually sitting on the stool. The difference between seeing and seeing and believing, one requires motion, a change in posture. And perhaps that's the key. Faith requires change. Look, don't miss this. You can have an encounter with Jesus and not believe. You can even be close to Jesus and miss it. You can talk to him, hear him speak, interact with him. The Jews in this story do all of those things and still not believe. You can come to church, sing the songs, give a portion of your money, and still miss it. 
faith-filled encounters with the great I am require change. You can't just go on your merry way. Here's the thing. Most of us don't want to change. I heard about a study done once of heavy long-term smokers who were told by their doctors that they would need to change, quit smoking and get healthy, or they would die. (laughs) Only 20% changed. Too often, we would rather die than change. That's certainly true here in John chapter 6. Over the course of the next chapter, as Jesus reveals more and more of himself and invites people to respond to him in faith, more and more leave him. They abandon him. They don't want to change, and so they go their way, and that's par for the course. It's easy to want the miracle without the miracle giver, the trappings of religion without the life change, the comfort of tradition without a change in posture or heart. And you and I, like the crowd here in John chapter 6, we are so often hard-hearted grumblers who'd rather die than change. But I love how Jesus responds to the grumblers. His response is an invitation to the crowds and it's an invitation to us. You can almost hear the exasperation in his voice. How many times do I have to say that? Did you catch it when I read read it the first time? Jesus basically says the same thing on either side of the grumbling. And yet, he is again so, so patient. And as he repeats himself, verse 44, again he says, you can't earn it and you can't lose it. He offers an invitation, both to the crowds and to us. Jesus answered, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. He says it there again. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, here's the repetition again. I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, and I am the bread of life. There's an invitation to believe. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes, he invites them again, even after they're grumbling, not just to see him, not just to participate in the miracles, but to believe. The great I am, God in the flesh, wants the crowds to come to him, to trust him, to follow him. And friends, he offers the same invitation to you and to me today. An invitation to believe, to trust, to place our full confidence in him. Not only an invitation to believe, but also an invitation to receive. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. It's an invitation to come to Jesus open-handedly, 
on his terms and conditions and to receive him knowing full well that it will change everything for us. It's an invitation to the crowds to receive him, but it's also an invitation to us to receive Jesus open-handedly, whether for the first time or the first time in a long time or simply again. I grew up in the Presbyterian Church and worked on staff in Presbyterian churches for more than a decade before becoming an Anglican. And one of the reasons I became an Anglican is because we know and believe and practice this frequent invitation to believe and receive. Each and every week we hear the word of God preached and then we respond every week. Henry Nouwen once said that the Christian life is a constant call to conversion. And each week our liturgy invites us to see and to believe, to be converted, either for the first time or yet again. We respond by declaring our faith, by singing, by giving back to God from the earthly treasure he's entrusted to us, by praying. But literally, in Anglican churches, every week there's an altar call. Because that's what the Lord's table is, after all, an altar call. In just a moment, we'll hear as Jamie reminds us of the gospel story as we participate in the remembering of that gospel story. And then we'll be invited to respond, to come forward, to kneel, to believe and receive. An invitation to get up out of our pews, to change location and posture. An opportunity to respond to Jesus' gracious invitation to believe. That's what we're doing when we come forward for communion and to receive. That's what we do when we kneel with open hands and open hearts to receive the bread and the wine, which in some mysterious way draws us into life with Jesus, who himself is the bread of life. It's a response to the invitation from the one who is himself the bread of life to See, to believe, to respond, and receive. And in believing and receiving, Jesus offers us an invitation to a much bigger story. Eternal life itself. It's a promise that Jesus repeats six times in this section of John 6 alone. An invitation into a life with God that will never falter or fade, that will in fact never end. It's a promise that we'll be raised with Jesus to life everlasting and he will never let us go. And so we're going to sing. We'll declare our faith together. We'll pray. We'll pass the peace and then we'll come to the Lord's table together. Friends, there's space here in our liturgy for you to respond to Jesus, to come to him again, to trust him, and then we'll come to the table together. Friends, don't be satisfied with proximity, with going through the motions. Rather, I'd invite you to respond to Jesus, to give yourself to him in faith, even as we remember that he gave himself for us. Will you stand and pray with me?
Gracious God, thank you for this invitation to come to you again and again and again. And I pray, God, even now that you would stir faith in our hearts. That we might not be people who only see, but people who see and believe and come to you in faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.